to really take a an approach to the national conversation of you know the separation of a gun versus a taser um and how you interact with black people how you interact with people who don't look like you on a daily basis so i, I would probably want to see what that looks like and what are those conversations because it is happening and it could happen to a district near them we should be talking Absolutely. about let's go let's let's go let's let, let. Oh, go ahead I want to make sure we should be having a conversation about de-escalation in the first place or compliance versus non-compliance when you get people that are getting pulled over or being stopped for mundane activities. So that white gentleman you saw in that truck, he's probably getting pulled over for a legitimate reason. You see that some of many other folks, they're just getting yanked off the street. And so we can't get to the de-escalation conversation. We have some people are not even getting that conversation, the engagement police officers in the first place. Absolutely. All right, folks, let's go to Tennessee, where uh, the black student who was shot and killed in the bathroom at Austin East Magnet High School in Knoxville did not shoot the wounded school resource officer. Hmm, you might have been seeing this story, folks. In the initial report, which y'all know we've been down this path before, uh, in the initial report, uh, police claimed, they claimed that 17-year-old Anthony J. Thompson Jr. shot at the officer. Hmm. But the report from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation says Thompson never fired his gun. Yes, it appears another police officer shot him during the incident. Okay, now the result of the investigation, the result of the Bureau's investigation uh, will be given to the school district attorney when complete. Um... How many times are we going to have to deal with lies from police officers about shootings? Here is a young African-American who's dead. Dead because the cops fired. And they lied. So how many more times are we going to have to deal with the lies? I have continuously said, I've continuously said, Michael, that if a cop lies on the report, automatic firing. Because we saw what took place in Chicago with the story yesterday. Right. When the cops lie, they, the prosecutor... They only hear their story. They don't hear an alternative view. So they accept that as the truth. So they go to court. And now you have the police officer, now the prosecutor who lay out the facts. The judges go, okay, we trust them. There we go. Mm -hmm. No, they lie. This is why, sorry, we have to question every single time. There's a cop shooting. We have to automatically assume they're lying. Yeah, you know, we have to get the facts on on, on these different types of shootings. You know, this reminds me of Breonna Taylor. And they said that the police said that Breonna Taylor's boyfriend uh, shot one of the officers in the leg. But then we look at the um, 
uh, I think it was the Kentucky, uh, the Kentucky State Bureau of Investigation. Uh, one, one of the analysis said it was inconclusive that it was his gun that fired the shot that hit the officer in the leg. I think we've talked about that before. Um, so, you know, yeah, once again, this is why, uh, one, you have to get the facts. Two, officers that lie on police reports have to be held accountable, have to be fired. Um, and then this ties into what we saw in in, in uh, Chicago, and we see the video of uh, uh, the 13-year-old uh, turns around, okay, and Toledo, he turns around at him, and it appears his hands are empty, but it's a split second from him turning around that he gets shot. And he and he's compliant. He's doing what the officer told him to do. So, um, yeah, once again, this is an uh, example why we have to get the facts, hold police accountable. And um, uh, also, uh, also on the flip side of this, we got to push, uh, push hard to get the uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed in the Senate as well. I know it's an uphill battle. But, 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 but that, but, but, but that's so, but that's only separate. I, what I'm, what I'm talking yeah. about is that, that that's federal law. What I'm talking yeah, about here, what I'm talking here, Xavier, that has to happen. City leaders have to simply say in negotiations, uh, Xavier, if these officers lie in reports, they lose their jobs. Period. We got to go beyond that, Roland. We do. Because we saw the whole Jesse Smollett situation. You know, the whole issue with the right was him falling, filing a false police report. And that's a crime. But if a police officer files a false police report, we're talking about firing when people's lives could potentially be at stake. If you are engaging the process of law, if there are plenty of other professions that are govern a certain way, just like we saw Bernie Madoff, he died this week his, in the financial profession, if you go beyond a certain level of professional standard it is a crime, so if you're using the color of law to be able to file false police reports lie on police reports, and this leads to people losing their freedom, that should be a crime, there needs to be a change in the model penal code, and also we see a lot of these different police trials that there are specific charges that really mostly apply to the public well, we should be having a specific criminal statute. If you do these things under the color of law, then this is a crime. The purpose of statutes on the criminal books is to deter crime. And so that's what we need to do to be able to keep officers from using their position, using their authority to be able to abuse it and run afoul of the law and figure that they can just do it over and over again. Teresa? I agree, because most of the reports that are given by police are the, the almost like the agency of record, you know, in a court of law. So, you know, God forbid something happens to the officer after he gives that report. Well, if we need to, you know, ask that officer something and unfortunately he gets slain in the line of duty for another incident, we only have that report to justify that case. And it's so unfortunate because as many times as we have, have heard police officers, oh, you know, I made a mistake. Oh, you know, um, maybe I embellished a little bit. There's no accountability. And, you know, Xavier was spot on as it relates to ensuring that some uh, uh, more more um, laws and more uh probably just more just reprimand on um, police officers and their conduct um, and, the, and and really probably just making sure that the reports, um, you know, are, you know, uphold to the same criminal, you know, act, activity. I mean, because look, a lot, the, the point of the matter is a lot of police officers
reports. And so, so some may just, you know, write casually what they saw. But that report would really, you know, be almost like a final testimony um, in the midst of a court hearing if it gets there. Uh, well, absolutely. So, uh, bottom line, folks, uh, we see sort of the actions, how quick uh, these cops are. In fact, we talked about that case out of Chicago in Cleveland. Tamir Rice's family, they want the Justice Department to reopen the case uh, where he was shot and killed. In a letter sent to the Justice Department, this is what the family of Tamir Rice wrote. Quote, we ask that you reopen the investigation into the death of Tamir Rice. There's no statute of limitations on prosecuting Lowman for killing Tamir in violation of his civil rights. See 8, Section 18 U.S.C. 242. In making this plea, we are mindful that no one can guarantee a conviction and that prosecutions against police officers present special challenges. But it is vital for DOJ to establish that those who enforce our laws are subject to our laws. The police must be held accountable prosecuted for criminal wrongdoing. This case involves the unjustified killing of a child and a prosecution that was thwarted through political abuse. Fortunately, it is not too late to correct this manifest injustice. In December, the DOJ decided it will not pursue federal criminal charges against the two Cleveland cops who killed the 12-year-old Timmy Rice in 2014. Uh, this, to me, I think is a, an important move, uh, Xavier, and uh, bottom line is a different DOJ. Look, there's no guarantee. Remember, the Obama Department of Justice chose not to prosecute the cop who killed Michael Brown. Uh, the DOJ also chose not to prosecute the case of uh, the police officer who was later fired, who killed uh, Eric Garner. And so uh, it was Attorney General Eric Holder who warned us. He warned us about the issues uh, with the Department of Justice. He warned us the problems that they have because there is a very high bar that they have to meet uh, in order uh, to be able to pursue civil rights violations. And so everybody who's listening, the Department of Justice cannot pursue uh, the state criminal charges that are against them. They can't do that. What they have to, they can only pursue, they can only pursue uh, those uh, other charges, that is civil rights violations. And so I think that's why it's important for us to understand exactly what DOJ can and cannot do. Uh, but, but I dare say, Xavier, uh, what Tamir Rice's family is asking for uh, really is uh, important because they want a fresh set of eyes, a new Department of Justice, uh, to determine whether or not to pursue charges uh, against the cop who killed their, their son. Yeah, that's right, Roland. The previous DOJ said there was not enough evidence to establish what happened. The video clearly shows us what happened. They, the police reports said that, uh, that they told Tamir Rice to put his hands in the air. He didn't. He was shot. The video clearly shows the second the cop pulls up, he shoots and kills Tamir Rice. The same what we saw with with Adam Toledo. Like how many times do we have to see these videos we clearly can see with our own two eyes as lay people what has happened and then you have a Department of Justice say we can't officially establish what's happened. If you see that at any person on the street shoot someone on video without saying so much as a word they're going to jail. Roland? And so that's, the, that's what we're dealing with is what we're seeing right in front of our eyes we do the right thing, a movie by Spike Lee, 30 plus years old, a very relevant to what's going on right now. After Radio Raheem is killed, one of the gentlemen on the scene says, it is clear as day, they didn't have to kill the boy. And that's what we're faced with now.
Um, this, I think, uh, is critically important, Teresa, uh, this decision here, uh, because, again, they, they just they want a fresh pair of eyes on the case. And they deserve it. I mean, the, the, according to the last um, um, president, president uh, sorry, the last DOJ, they said they couldn't see the video. The video wasn't clear. Like, you know, sorry, it's not 4K quality, but the circumstances still remain the same. You know, a kid was outside. Tamir Rice was outside playing with a handgun. The officer asked no questions. He pulled up and he shot at him and killed him. And so when the family is asking for justice, they're they're asking for a fresh set of eyes and they absolutely deserve it. Because part of it is when we look at, you know, the cases that are happening in America and we're asking, you know, our justice system to actually do something different. Uh, part of it is we need someone that's going to take a, a clear approach. And obviously Barr wasn't doing it prior because he had his own issues. But I think hopefully, you know, Mer uh, Merrick Garland would actually do something different this time around. So I'm glad that a letter was actually sent to them and was brought to the light. So hopefully some action can come. Michael? Yeah, you know, Roland, um, I definitely uh, think the case should be opened back up under the new Department of Justice. Um, when you go back and research the case, and I reported on this case a lot uh, here in Detroit, um, Officer Timothy Lohman shot Tamir Rice within about two, with less than two seconds. I remember uh, Attorney uh, Benjamin Crump said it was about 1.8 seconds of the car of the police car arriving shot him within about 1.8 seconds and one thing that's important to understand is that when an officer gives a command you have to give the person a reasonable amount of time to respond to the command he didn't have time to respond to any command okay and he was he, he, and he was shot um yes the yes the video was grainy but there's other evidence Okay, there's other evidence as well. So, uh, but once again, you you, you got to understand this is uh, Attorney General William Barr, former Attorney General William Barr, who says systemic racism in policing didn't exist. Okay, now one good thing um, uh, you mentioned, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland. Merrick, Merrick Garland put out a four-page memo today, uh, rescinding the Trump era almost ban on the Justice Department's use of consent decrees. So in a police department, so he's reversing that. So that that is something good. So hopefully, mm -hmm. uh, the Attorney General Mary Garland will uh, reopen this investigation. It should be. All right, then, folks. Uh, a lot of conversation has taken place uh, since the death of Dante Wright uh, about. Uh, the use, first of all, not understanding the difference between a Glock uh, as well as uh, a handgun. My goodness, you even had Pat Robertson who was condemning cops for not understanding the difference. This was a video put out by TikTok, put on TikTok by a police officer who himself was not at all happy uh, with the officer confusing her taser uh, and her gun. Dominant, not so dominant. Huge weight difference, guys. I don't understand how we can mistake a taser for a gun or a gun for a taser. If you're in the heat at a moment and you do something like that, you shouldn't be doing this job. Because nobody likes a bad cop more than a good cop. I can tell you that straight up. I'm not going to put my life on the line to try and, 
you know, fix your stupidity and, and deal with, you know, restoring the peace with my public that I serve just because of your stupid actions. It makes no sense. 99% of our job is communication. You don't got to be quick to pull out a gun or a taser on somebody and think everybody's a threat. Not everybody's a threat. Try talking to them. Get to know them people. And that's what we've all been saying. And yeah, I'm glad a white cop put that video out there. Because they, because I've always said cops should be calling out other cops who screw up, Teresa. Yeah, and that's a great example of what should be happening, you know, in, in other um, counties and bureaus across the country. Um, I think that was a, a very, you know, special moment for, you know, those who were watching that video and saying, you know what, he's absolutely right. Now, we have heard it many a times from others saying, you know, what's the difference? We didn't saw elected officials holding up different pictures of um, what a taser and what a Glock looks like. But having somebody who's actually on the force, who, you know, who embodies exactly, you know, the job and knows that, you know, communication matters the most, especially if you are policing and serving these communities, it really does hit home. And I, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm glad he still has a job. You just never know these days um, uh, if, if department privileges takes that video down. But um, I think, you know, we need to hold them accountable. And I think more opportunities where we hear police officers talk about the injustice of those other, you know, bad apples, um, you know, that they always say um, that lies in their department. They still call them out. Absolutely. Um, I, I just think that, again, uh, you have more of that than, of course, you're going to have people uh, who are going to really, really uh, deal with this whole issue. And then, of course, you got cops like this in North Las Vegas. A police there under fire after a video of a black deaf mother being handcuffed and hurled to the ground in front of her children was shared on Facebook. Last week, Andrea Hollingsworth and her 11-year-old twins went to visit a landlord to get her rent money back. Because she was no longer living there. The homeowners called the police and accused Hollingsworth of harassment. North Las Vegas police caught up with the black family. Look at what happened. Let's go. Let's go. You can record. I'm recording too, but I need you to point in front of my car. Why does she have to do it? What's I'll have you come with me so you can talk. Sit down. Don't, don't do that stuff. Okay? She's kind of doing it. 
feeling secure. I, I don't. I'm it doesn't so matter. Happy. What I need to know is I'm investigating something. I just need to be safe. That's all there is to it, okay? She's just over here because she needs her money back from her friend. That's what I'm trying to find out. But you see how we need to get there. Sit. Don't be. Don't be getting away. What is she doing? She's not. She's just not. Right doing okay, well, she's not following directions. Is what's not happening. It's very simple. Does she have ID? I need ID. Bobby. ID? Yes. ID. Yeah, in the car. Okay. So, no, no, no. Sit. Sit. She'll get it. She don't know. That's fine. Okay. Okay. We'll get that later. Sit down. Sit down. Down. Sit. Sit down. Put your hands behind your back. Put your hands behind your back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Association of the Deaf, officers violated the Americans with Disabilities Act when they ordered Hollingsworth daughters to act as interpreters. Ooh. Folks, again, uh, we keep saying this over and over again. When you have these instances uh, where police are called, if they are not at all trained to deal with this, they don't know what they're doing, which is why people, when they talk about defund the police, they're talking about, they're talking about uh, being able to utilize, uh, being able to utilize uh, social workers and other professionals, and that's why they do that. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We come back. This transgender bill in Florida literally is going to allow for school officials to inspect the genitals of students. We'll explain next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. that certain athletic teams or sports sponsored by certain educational institutions be designated on the basis of students' biological sex. It prohibits athletic teams or sports designated for female students to be open to male students. It requires a student school or in the school, student school institution, as applicable, resolve disputes regarding students' sex. It requires the State Board of Education to adopt certain rules, provides for civil remedies and damages. This means an institution can request documentation from a student's health care provider that verifies the student's biological sex. The bill also gives a student's school permission to request a routine sports physical examination of students' reproductive organs, genetic makeup, or testosterone levels. 
LGBTQ advocates argue the bill is discriminatory and could expose students to physical and sexual abuse and trauma. Uh, I have said to several other people, Teresa, that you know we dealt with the transgender bathroom bill, and that was repealed in North Carolina. It was repealed in Indiana. Conservatives pretty much backed off of it. You're going to see a lot more of these bills. When it's tied to sports, people are going to have a different attitude because of how crazy and deranged are. I, I think this is this right here. This bill is going to go over to other states. This is the next cultural flashpoint for the far right. Yeah, I mean, I think the LGBTQ plus community needs to continue to fight for their rights um, as it relates to equality across the board. Um, I think this bill will be um, interesting to watch. Um, I think there is a I'm not entirely sure I agree with the um, physical examination, you know, by uh, probably a physician either on site or off site. Um, but I, I, most of the conversation that's been happening is, you know, uh, the, these families are feeling like their child doesn't have um, a fair, uh, you know, uh, ability to get into the school of their choice um, because of the sports team. And so, again, as the, you know, the LGBTQ uh, plus community is trying to make a headway, they have to remember that there is decades of um you know just equality issues all around so um continue to fight xavier um again when we start talking about sports in america all these folks they think that everybody the kid is going to go pro uh this is going to be uh one of those hot button issues the right is going to try to 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 you know, knock the left over the head. It's going to be a question of if you're a Democrat, do you support it? Are you against it? Trust me, I, I see where this is going. Watch other states uh, pass similar bills. Roland, didn't we just see USA Swimming, their, their scandal with the sexual assaults and the, the, the those, that, that particular issue? Didn't we just see this in, in Michigan State gymnastics? Um, and even so, one of the, the, the officials involved even killing himself. We've seen the right attempt to say, stick to sports. But here they are getting involved in sports and then couching it under women's rights issues, knowing darn well they don't care about women when they're trying to inflict issues on their reproductive parts and taking the agency away from women in terms of abortion laws. And so... We're, we're seeing it is an expansion of these cultural wars that the right is having, thinking that the, the fever from their, uh, their, the population and the people that support them are going to get, bring their butts to the polls to be able to support them in 2022 and 2024. This is all laying the groundwork for the white grievance that they are continuing to push on, whether it's Mr. Potato Head, whether it's Dr. Seuss, whatever they are doing. They're influencing in terms of how people think and how they're going to vote to be able to buffer up the amount of people that get up to the polls. This is just increasing the enthusiasm. But what we're, we saw in North Carolina, like you talked about earlier, Indiana, the pressure from the sports community pushes back on this as well. So we also will see this on the other side. 
Bamazis here again. I think what you're seeing is uh, the ride is always about the cultural touch points. How do they rev up their uh, white conservative evangelical base? Uh, they see how the economy is doing very well for President Joe Biden. Uh, trust me, we're going to see more hot button issues being pressed in order to get that white conservative evangelical folks out to vote for the midterm elections next year, Michael. Yeah, you're right about this, Roland, because Republicans really aren't doing anything when it comes to fighting coronavirus or when it comes to the economy or when it comes to helping, you know, raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. You know, they, they're not doing anything there. So they're going to push something like this. Now, in reading this, what's very interesting, Roland, now, number one, you have dozens of similar bills like this trying to be pushed through state legislatures. This one goes further. Uh, because now this passed the uh, state house representatives already in Florida. Uh, this one goes farther because it allows uh, inspection of genitals. But in reading this, it's called the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. It bans transgender female athletes from competing on women's athletic teams at both high school and college sports, although transgender male athletes may still compete on either team. Hmm. So I, I don't even understand that. What? That doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for a number of reasons. So, <laughs> but once again, this is this is Florida. This is and Governor Ron DeSantis will probably sign this in the law, okay? Just like he uh, is pushing this anti-riot bill, okay? Uh, because of the Black Lives Matter activists, he's pushing that as well. So, you know, th this is going to be another culture issue, just like gay marriage was a culture issue. They can't they can't say that the let's be honest, Roland. They can't say they're the, the they're the party of family values anymore. They can't say after Donald Trump and after uh, Sugar Daddy Matt Gates, they can't say they're the, the party of family values anymore. So they're pushing these different culture issues, trying to uh, 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 win votes and trying to maintain power. I don't think it's going to work, though. Yeah, it may work in exactly. Florida, yeah, well, but, but across the country, it's not going to work. Well, all right, then, folks, let's talk about uh, D.C. The battle for D.C. statehood continues as the U.S. House will vote on April 22nd. To make D.C. the 51st state, the House Oversight and Reform Committee voted to approve H.R. 51 after hearing a strong opening statement by Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton and powerful testimony by Mayor Miro Bowser. The contentious bill passed in the House last year but was shut down by the Republican-led Senate. Uh, Steny Hoyer, uh, of course, uh, he is the majority leader. He has already said point blank, point blank, that it's going to come up for a vote. Uh, real simple, Xavier. Does it pass? Do Democrats pass it again? And will Senate Democrats give it a shot for a vote in the U.S. Senate? Yes or no? Two words, Joe Manchin. Roland. Teresa? Um, so, yeah. It, does it pass? Yes. Um, in the House. Um, not sure in the Senate, though, but... Michael? Now with 212 co-sponsors, it won't pass in the House. You need 218. So if they, if they can't get to 218, they're 212 right now. But I, I think it's going to die in, in, in the Senate. But but hopefully uh, Democrats will increase their lead in the 2020 presidential, uh, 2020 midterm election in the Senate where you can eventually get this passed through. But I don't think it's going to pass. You need 60 votes in the Senate. I don't think, I don't think it's going to pass in the Senate. All right, folks. Uh, white folks love these these white supremacy media outlets love hating on black folks, especially when they call out white supremacy. 
an ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas Greenville. Well, she gave remarks at the 30th Annual National Action Network Convention, where she addressed white supremacy being at the foundation of America. Watch this. In a diverse country like ours, that means committing to do the work. It means learning and understanding more about each other. It means engaging trailblazing groups like yours to teach, to grow, to include, to improve. It means not forgetting our past or ignoring our present, but keeping both firmly in mind as we push for a better future. I tried to do this recently in the UN General Assembly when I spoke on the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. That day and commemoration was personal for me. So I told the UN some personal stories. I told them how my great-grandmother, Mary Thomas, born in 1865, was the child of a slave just three generations back from me. I grew up in the segregated South. I was bused to a segregated school. On weekends, the Klan burned crosses on lawns in our neighborhood. I shared these stories and others to acknowledge on the international stage that I have personally experienced one of America's greatest imperfections. I've seen for myself how the original sin of slavery weaved white supremacy into our founding documents and principles. But I also shared these stories to offer up an insight, a simple truth I've learned over the years. Racism is not the problem of the person who experiences it. Those of us who experience racism cannot and should not internalize it despite the impact it can have on our everyday lives. Racism is the problem of the racist. And it is the problem of the society that produces the racist. And in today's world... Well, well, at today's White House press briefing, Newsmax reporter Emerald Robinson actually asked Press Secretary Jen Psaki if Biden was going to fire his U.N. ambassador for those comments. Go ahead in the back. Thanks, Jen. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, talking to her group on Wednesday, said that Weiss essentially said that white supremacy is woven into our founding documents and principles. Now, this statement is getting widely criticized as essentially parroting Chinese Communist Party talking points. So is the president going to remove her from her position as the representative before that body to promote United States values? Is the president going to remove an African-American woman with decades of experience in the Foreign Service who is widely respected around the world from her position as ambassador to the UN? He is not. He, will t he is proud to have her in that position. He, she is not only qualified, uh, he believes she is exactly the right person in that role at this moment in time. I have not seen her comments. I will say that there's no question that there has been a history of institutional racism in this country, and that doesn't require the UN ambassador to confirm that. Essentially the same lecture, though, that the Chinese delegation gave Secretary Blinken in Alaska last month. So does the president think our founding documents are racist? Uh, I would say that uh, I will uh, I will leave my comments to speak for themselves, and certainly I think most people recognize the history of systemic racism in our country, uh, and uh, she was speaking to that. Mm -hmm.
Newsmax. <laughs> Man, you better take y'all ass on if y'all actually think he gonna fire the UN ambassador, a black woman who's talking about racism in America like she ain't experienced it. Xavier, then you better sit their ass down. <laughs> Newsmax <laughs> isn't even news. What, what, news is, popular, is, is propaganda, Max. That's what they are. Um, and great answers that she's been, she's been giving from what their quote-unquote reporters have been seeking to do. They're, they're, they're not asking questions. They're seeking to establish content for their network and for their followers to be able to push propaganda. This isn't news. This isn't journalism. All this is doing is stoking up white grievance. This is profoundly racist to be able to suggest that a black woman wouldn't know what's going on with racism in the country and to be able to attach that to another aspect of talking about Chinese delegation and talking points, um, connecting this anti-China, anti-Asian Pacific Islander stoking that they're doing. It is absolutely ridiculous. It shouldn't be recognized at all. Uh, I, I'm just sort of laughing, uh, Teresa. Oh, is he going to get rid of her? Hell no! You know what? Jen um, has, has been uh, astonishing handling uh, the media and, and more importantly, handling Emerald Robinson, especially in this uh, scenario. It's funny because when it uh, actually aired, I was like, well, let's see if um, they actually use that clip on Newsmax uh, of what Jen said. And you should have saw the way it was pieced together because, I mean, this is the, you know, this is the first time rolling that I'm seeing it in, in full length of Jen's comments because everything was just kind of pieced. Um, so I thought that was interesting, but again, um, you know, I, I agree with Brother Pope. It's literally building content, content for their propaganda to um, raise up their base, to keep that 74 million people that voted for Trump energized. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's, it's almost like halfway ignorance and I think, you know, that Ms. Greenfield did not experience exactly what everybody has been saying, racism in this country, um, slave, you know, slavery, you know, back when, and the nuance of slavery and the new Jim Crow. So, you know, part of that ignorance is not willing to understand and not willing to have that base of wanting to educate yourself. There's so many scholarly articles, but like I said before, congrats to our press secretary for doing the work of the people. <laughs> First of all, she spoke a whole lot of words, uh, uh, Michael. This really should have been her response. Hell no. Next. <laughs> Boy, well, you know, Roland, I, I posted about this. Um, I read about this article. I posted about it a few hours ago, man, from rawstory.com. Uh, first of all, uh, the response that I wanted uh, Jen Psaki to give was the same one Maxine Waters gave punk-ass Jim Jordan yesterday. <laughs> Shut your mouth. Okay, that's the response I, I wanted Jen Psaki to give to uh, Emma, Emma, Emma Robinson. But uh, uh, Greenfield said something very, very important. And this ties into your interview with Dr. Ray Wimbush yesterday about H.R. 40 um, coming out of uh, House Judiciary Committee. Uh, Dr. Ray Wimbush, who's a friend of mine, he said that he could not believe how ignorant many of the Republicans were uh, on the committee about history. That's what this ties into. Uh, Greenfield talked about uh, founding documents. These fools haven't read the founding documents. Half of them can't read. They haven't read the Constitution. The Constitution sanctions slavery. 
the Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3 of the U.S. Constitution deals with the Three-Fifths Compromise of 1787. Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution lays the foundation for the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 and 1850. The Constitution sanctions slavery. So she's absolutely correct. The problem is you dealing, you ain't just dealing with white supremacists, you dealing with ignorant people that don't understand their own history. This is this is why they had to have this revision, this 1776 commission that uh, uh, Donald Trump put together to attack the 1619 project. And thankfully, Joe Biden decommissioned. He disbanded that commission. OK, so this is another one of these culture wars where it comes from a total misunderstanding of history. This is why America has to have a massive history lesson. OK, it, when, when we're talking about reparations. Okay, that has a historical and legal foundation. America has to have a massive history lesson because so many of us, regardless of race, are ignorant of history. They don't want to know. Uh, I got some breaking. One second, one second, one second. Got some breaking news here. Uh, President Joe Biden earlier today announced he was not going to be lifting the cap uh, on refugee admissions. Oh, the right loved that. They said uh, he was agreeing with the Trump policy. Well, just in about announcing he is reversing course and plans to increase the cap on refugee admissions. What the hell were they thinking, uh, Teresa? Did they think they were just going to slide this one by? <laughs> Probably. So, <laughs> but then we uh, have a president that, you know, has a, 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 a few um, of advisors that is just like, no, this just doesn't work. So congrats to President Biden. Uh, this is this was a very contentious uh, issue. First of all, again, you got you got these white supremacists like Tucker Carlson out there talking about white, this this white replacement theory. Uh, but the bottom line is, they the ones who ain't having no damn kids. Numbers don't lie. Uh, America is not repopulating because fewer people are having children. Uh, again, it, there, there's no lie. And so uh, many people have said that uh, Trump's policy uh, was racist. It was wrong, uh, wrong-headed. Uh, it caught a lot of people by surprise when Biden announced that, he was, that, his, that his administration was going to continue it. They got withering pressure today from Democrats already backtracking. I'm sure you know what's going to come next. He's going to get hit by, hit by the right. Oh, he flip-flopped. Smart decision or should he be stuck with the original plan, uh, Michael? Uh, I, I was... A little confused by the original plan. I, I saw an update uh, about that, and I haven't had a chance to really dig into it. But uh, I figured, just initially looking at it, I figured that uh, he would change course uh, on that. Um, you, when you talk about a negative birth rate, you are correct, because June 2018, the Census Bureau put out a memo saying that white people had a negative birth rate in 26 states out of 50. Uh, and what this, once again, does, it plays into this, this fear of the browning of America. So uh, you, you, I think you had some Republicans that first cheered what Biden did. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens now that he reversed course on this. Xavier. The Republicans really weren't cheering with Joe Biden. All they were saying, oh, we got you. We got you to rope you into something that we've done. We saw Ted Cruz and the, and, and, and the other foolish Republicans take their butts down to the border and for photo ops and, <laughs> and, and act like clowns at the border. And they were able to draw Joe Biden into that discussion. And Joe Biden has to be careful when Republicans try to use optics to rope him in into these cultural issues. He has to stick to the plan, stick 
to the script. Yes, you want to unite America. Yes, you want to be able to get the Biden Republicans, as it were. But you have to be able to stick with what's working with you, bending your will to people who don't care about your policy and want to oppose it at every juncture should not be bowed down to. All right, then. Again, that was just in. All right, y'all, let's go to Utah. Eh, we don't often say that on this show, but a group of Utah lawmakers are demanding that the Salt Lake Tribune immediately remove a cartoon depicting black Congressman Burgess Owens, Republican, as a member of the KKK. Senators Mike Lee and Mitt Romney are among five uh, members of Congress who issued a joint statement calling the cartoon repugnant. The cartoon, which is satire, depicts Owens next to a member of the KKK. Uh, Owens has been outspoken about migrants crossing the border. The comic shows how the KKK were just as fearful of blacks ruining their neighborhoods. Burgess, uh, you, the tweets back and forth. If y'all have the tweets, go ahead and show them. Uh, the back and forth. And, and the cartoonist, he said, hell no, this is it here. Uh, Burgess Owens, the Salt of Trib and Pat Megley, compare me to the KKK, the radical hate group that terrorized... That, uh, guys, go back, please. I didn't read the tweet. Thank you. That terrorized me and my youth because I am one of many sounding the alarm of the trauma being faced by women and children crossing the border. This is pathetic. Well, Bagley responded. Y'all got it? Oh, come on, guys. Y'all, we're supposed to have that. All right, let me uh, let me read that. I, I, I love Bagley's response. Uh, let's see here. Let me pull this up. Uh... Yeah, we should we should have had um, uh, all the string of tweets. Um, uh, I, I was cracking up laughing because uh, man, they're really uh, upset. Uh, let's see here, uh, Bagley. Yeah, uh, who you know he, he is white, uh, but uh, he clearly uh, did not care uh, what Burgess Owens uh, had to say uh, about the tweets. Let me pull it up here. Uh, he called it woke racism. That's what. Um, Burgess Owens uh, actually called it. Um, uh, and Bagley did say that, like, look, he doesn't have any understanding uh, about the issue of uh, dealing with racism, but he definitely said uh, that uh, when you have someone uh, who's using the language of uh, Burgess Owens, they deserve to be called out. And, and, and it's, so you sit here and you, you look at this, uh, this anger, if you will, uh, Teresa, this, oh, they're so upset at him. And what, and what Bagley was simply saying is, this is what Burgess Owens, Owens is saying today. This is what the KK, 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 KK was saying years back. <laughs> when it's that's, that's, that's what he was saying. So uh, is, uh, is Burgess uh, right to be all offended? Or should he check himself for the, the kind of crap that he says? No, he should absolutely feel offended because he's absolutely right in the uh, cartoon that he displayed. But it's unfortunately, it's the reality of today. And so the reason why, you know, some of the um, the 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 forums and people are starting getting upset is because they're like, you know, this is true, but you don't have to put it in living color. And so it's so unfortunate, you know, that, you know, the, the stuff that, you know, we verbalize. But when you start seeing it in print. Um, and you start seeing it in cartoons, it's, it's, it's reality. It's an unfortunate reality that we're dealing with today. 
Um, uh, Xavier, this is funny. Uh, Bagley tweeted, the Utah GOP stands with Owens' hateful lies. Read his own words and decide for yourselves if Owens is echoing past white supremacist rhetoric. In fact, uh, his response to one of, one of uh, the other uh, tweets uh, from Burgess Owens, he said, quotation is not defamation. <laughs> Listen, if you tap dance and people hear the sound, can't, can't get mad if people tell you what it sounds like. <laughs> so, uh, Burgess Owens really has said some of the most crazy, nonsensical stuff mm-hmm. uh, since he's been in Congress. Of course, I still can't forget when the Congressman Hakeem Jeffries just checked his ass uh, in their first meeting. Is that Michael? Michael? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Roland, Burgess Owens. Now, he's a former football player. I don't know if Burgess Owens has chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, but I would not be surprised if he does. This is the same brother, and I use that term loosely, who testified at the, at the reparations hearing against reparations for black people. This is Burgess Owens. So, you, uh, yeah, the, the words fit. Okay, and this is the same language. This is this is the same language that the KKK used as well. Um, and when you study the history of the KKK, the KKK was also uh, KKK was anti-immigrant, but they were also anti-white immigrant. Uh, Germans and Italians and things like this, they were against the, they were against them as well. So um, research research Burgess Owens because uh, a lot of a lot of people in Utah. Uh, love him and and uh, they love this type of black person, but Burgess Owens does not want to confront white supremacy and racism. See, this is what's interesting. He doesn't want to confront white supremacy and racism. And when you have somebody who speaks out against reparations at the reparations conference and they're black, you have to ask them, what's wrong with this Negro? <laughs> I, I can't answer for you. I can't answer for you. All right, y'all, I got to go to a break. We'll be back on shortly on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, let's go to uh, our Education Matters segment. In Alito, Texas, parents of two black students who were targeted in a racist social media group are demanding transparency for the school district. Johnson and Tamara Lawrence told school administrators their son showed them a screenshot from a group called Slave Trade that appeared to be auctioning their sons. The parents reported the screenshot to the principal and other administrators asking them to be transparent and for the district to provide a detailed statement on what took place. Alito ISD administrators only put out a vague statement about the incident after it became public. Quote, racial harassment and cyberbullying had occurred and assigned disciplinary consequences. That's it. Since being called out by the parents and members of the community, Alito Independent School District released an additional statement. Hmm. This time saying, there is no room for racism or hatred in the Alito ISD, period. Using inappropriate, offensive, and racially charged language and conduct is completely unacceptable and is prohibited by district policy. More than two weeks ago, the district learned of an incident that involved students from the Daniel Ninth Grade campus bullying and harassing other students based on their race and launched an immediate and thorough investigation that involved law enforcement. We made a formal determination that racial harassment and cyberbullying had occurred. 
and assign disciplinary consequences in accordance with our policy and the student code of conduct. This incident has caused tremendous pain for the victims, their families, and other students of color and their families. And for that, we are deeply saddened. After being notified of the incident, the Lido ISD immediately engaged in conversations and communication with students and the student group that was involved, as well as their parents, and made it clear that statements and conduct that targets a student because of his or her race is not only prohibited, but also has a profound impact on the victims. We also shared this message with staff and parents at the campus. Lido ISD will continue to take action to ensure students, staff, and parents in our community understand the negative impact of racism and other forms of harassment on victims, as well as the consequences of those these actions at school through district-led educational opportunities. We live in a community that comes together in support of its children and families, especially in difficult times, and we want our students of color to understand that they are loved and supported in Alito ISD. We ask that our parents and community continue to have important conversations with their children at home about racism and other forms of harassment as we all work together as a community to support our Bearcats. Well, Teresa, the parents now want the district to provide racial and cultural awareness training and to come up with a policy that punishes racist behavior more harshly. I got a feeling, Teresa, that they call somebody like you to do crisis intervention after that sorry-ass first statement they dropped. It seemed like that had to be an assistant inside the office when uh, the, uh, the the incident first leaked. And then, uh, you know, once that went out, somebody picked up the phone and said, listen, this is unacceptable. This is the statement. And actually, whoever wrote that statement, that is the statement um, that every school district, especially going through not just cyberbullying, but racial discriminatory comments that affect these kids while they're in school, while they're young, because as they grow old, older, they'll start to think that it's, it's acceptable. And so it's not. And I think, like I said, the, the statement's right on, spot on. And the parents' uh, motive in order to make sure that there is some policy changes inside is probably the most important um, uh, change that can come to that school district. And ultimately finding, you know, uh, I, I think when they said they were doing in, inside that statement, they were having those communications of like where it started um, and, and, and essentially trying to find solutions. That's part of it. So no one, it seems like got expelled, but it looks like head on that they are facing it. And, and I think that was just a, a great start. Uh, sounds to me, Xavier, like somebody was thinking, uh, we're going to get our ass sued. Hey, so we better do a rural statement. You, basically, how you've handled this situation, if you approach it with, we want to be able to protect our butts, but on the back end of that, you have serious steps that could be taken to sue you, then you take the actions necessary. Why wait? So things come public for you to do the right thing. We continue to see this over and over and over and over again with issues involving our people where when it's quiet, no one wants to do the right thing. But when it gets out in the open, you're going to get sued. You're going to be put in a situation where you're going to face some sort of embarrassment. You go from a couple of lines to a couple of books of explaining um, the, the right thing to do. It's disgusting. It needs to be able to needs to change in a state like Texas specifically, it needs to be gone. Bottom line is, again, somebody uh, got lit up and they were like, we better go ahead and uh, 
uh, put out a new statement. So, yeah, smart move. All right, folks, let's go to Pennsylvania, where the Department of Education has introduced a plan that would shut... uh, I'm sorry, Mike, go ahead. Come on. Go ahead. (laughs) All right. Well, no, Mike, you uh, you don't comment on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Parker County... uh, Parker County NAACP president Eddie Burnett uh, uh, spoke out on this, so maybe maybe that was the impetus right there. But uh, very quickly, Roland. One, uh, I don't know how many of these uh, of the white students' parents were or relatives were at the insurrection January 6th at the U.S. Capitol building. I'm not sure, but if we find out the actual numbers, I wouldn't be surprised. Now, uh, 2018, 2019, uh, there were 413 graduates uh, from this. Um, uh, from the Daniel Ninth Grade Campus, uh, 413 graduates, seven were African American, 346 were white, and 45 were Hispanic. Uh, I encourage everybody to look at the study from the Southern Poverty Law Center called "Teaching Hard History American Slavery." Teaching Hard History American Slavery. I use it, and it can be used in schools, and it documents one how the history of slavery is incorrectly taught in schools all across the country. Two, it makes very good recommendations on how to more correctly teach that history, okay? Because uh, I I can only imagine what they teach about history at this school here and what they teach about slavery when only seven students in in, uh, in the graduating class were African-American. So, yeah, brother, this is a real problem, and you're dealing with Texas also. (laughs) You done? I'm done. (laughs) I'm just checking. I know you had a little bit more to say, so just, just just check. I don't know. I'm just checking. I'm done. Oh, you lean right there. Okay, all right, all right. Let's go to Pennsylvania, y'all. Yeah, all right. Well, the Pennsylvania Department of Education has introduced a plan that will shut down what it considers to be failing charter schools. The biggest issue of the proposal is the changes made in the funding. The Department of Education believes it's overpaying for cyber charter schools in Pennsylvania. But the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools says that's not true. Lena McAllister is director for the Western Pennsylvania for Commonwealth Foundation. Jones is right now. So let's just talk about talk about this, uh, 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 Lenny. It's always the back and forth. Last week we were talking about New York State, where they didn't want to authorize more charters in the city of New York, and the whole back and forth. And now you have in Pennsylvania. So, so what's their deal now saying, oh, we're paying too much? What's the deal in Pennsylvania? Well, what's going on, Roland, is, and I've been dealing with this since I've come on board as CEO of the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools, is you constantly have this fight over funding. And although have basically 25% of all the funding coming from the state staying at the school district and not following the kid from the school district over to the charter school, and despite the fact that school districts such as Philadelphia have been getting millions upon millions of dollars since last spring to fund schools that have not been open where the charter schools and the cyber charter schools have been opened by and large since last spring and the, the, the brick and mortar charts have been open in a hybrid fashion and the cyber charter schools have been open the whole time you still see this fight between teachers unions and charter schools and schools that are more run by African Americans in the charter sector having to fight against the education establishment for fair funding to ensure that we can serve our kids in a way that's going to best fit them academically and developmentally. Okay, so what are the numbers? What are the numbers? 
the numbers are right now what you're looking at is, like I said, on average, one quarter of every dollar stays at the school district for a charter school. Now, you have school districts such as Philadelphia and Pittsburgh where it's basically 35 percent roughly that stays in the school district from state funding that stays at the school district level versus going and following the kid over to the charter school. So whereas you have some school districts that have literally millions upon millions of dollars in their in the reserve balances and you have these charter schools that are on the brink, you end up finding that the school district now what's transpiring with the cyber charters is this. They're saying well the cyber charters have these Huge reserve funds, much like the school districts. The problem is, Roland, you have 500 school districts in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Each one of those 500 school districts determines the amount of tuition that it costs per student in their public school district. So when it comes to a cyber charter school, which obviously recruits from around the Commonwealth, it might cost $15,000 in one school district, but it might be $17,000 in a second school district, and it might be $22,000 in a third school district. They want to make that one lump sum the lowest possible number for the cyber charters and yet continue this fuzzy math when it comes to the school districts, even as they, A, continue to have this hybrid model, and some of them are still closed to in-person instruction, and B, the feds are sending in billions of dollars for school education for school districts since March of 2020. So do you simply see this as an effort by the state uh, to try to just cut funding. Is that what's going on? This is just another round of that. This is something that's been going on under this governor since January of 2015. He has done this with tax credit scholarships for kids that are going to Catholic and private schools. He has done this in the charter community. He is currently proposing $230 million worth of cuts, including $100 million for special education for kids in brick and mortar and cyber charter schools, including $50 million in special education cuts in Philadelphia alone, where one-third of all public school students are charter school students. And as we well know, that's a minority-majority school district, so it's going to disproportionately hurt African-American kids that are already on IEPs or other forms of special education plans. This is just unacceptable, especially during a pandemic where we're all suffering and trying to get back on track. It, 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 it never it, it, it amazes me that we have this constant battle back and forth, Teresa, uh, in these states over this over this. And, and I say this all the time, like literally there are three million children in America who are in charter schools, making up less than five percent of all students. And you have this this attitude that. The five percent are causing ninety-five percent of the problems. Uh, it, it's it's just dumb to me, and, and, and my position has always been the same, Teresa. That is, and, and I was in Philadelphia. Uh, we had a uh, school choice is the black choice town hall there uh, year before last, folks. Y'all can ask, go to our YouTube channel uh, and, and watch it. Uh, but the, the thing for me is just real simple: what is best for children to educate our kids? Period. Yeah. 
And that's been the conversation here in Philadelphia. Listen, I live here. I grew up here. And so the conversations here, it has always been education. I think every elected official um, that has wanted to run for public office, either, you know, city council or mayor, has always talked about the one point that will get them elected, education. But we never really talk about the state problem. And, you know, McAllister really just laid it out. There is a horrible funding formula that that has happened on the state level where the the criteria of what a failing charter school is has really been sort of at the focal point of some of these discussions. I know I actually had two clients uh, a few years ago um, who black black owned charter schools who, you know, literally wanted to educate their children, add culture, add history, add a lot of arts. And, you know, the the criteria that some of these charter schools um, and and the explanation of some of of them, it, it just really didn't add up. And so there was a lot of battles. There was a lot of advocacy. And again, at the end of the day, these these children were suffering. So every time the school district of Philadelphia, and particularly, because I'm not sure what's going on in Pittsburgh, but in particularly the school district of Philadelphia would put a stamp on a failing school. That then child that's in a charter school will go to another school. Hopefully there's one next door, a public school that's next door. But otherwise they would go 15, 20 miles down and then hopefully they would be in a lottery system to get in so ultimately this child suffers and then they're hopefully a part of a lottery system that they'll some of them just don't even get in so you know when we talk about you know where are some of our kids are going you know that's why oh workforce development apprenticeship programs are are sometimes at the you know at the highest peak oh let's have a job fair no let's educate our kids because we educate our kids, we can then start to tell them, hey, gun violence can reduce. Hey, you do have other options. The hood is not your only option, right? We, we, but if they're not in the institution that is giving them the development skills, then they'll feel like the same lyrics that's coming through some of these rap lyrics today um, will be their only option. And then some of my, you know, my, my young girls, and I have to say this before I, I'll, I'll let you go, but um, some of my young girls who were like 13 or 14 was like, you know, I was like, what do you aspire to do? Um, and they didn't want to say it out loud, but they put it on paper and they said, I want to be a dancer. And I'm like, okay, ballet. And these girls was literally saying stripper. And I'm just like, this is just, this is the culture. And, and, and it's so unfortunate. It breaks my heart because when we talk about the next generation of leadership, we have to talk about the next generation of education. And it really starts with making sure that there's adequate funding across the board. And, and, and Teresa's right, Roland. You can't sit there and say that you're going after these charter schools because they're failing academically and then continue to dump more money into the Philadelphia school district with a lot of failing schools or, or the Erie school district or Harrisburg school district or the Pittsburgh school district. And we see it across the country where the solution for failing district schools is they need more money. The solution for charter schools that are taking on kids that are already one to three years behind academically is, well, if they don't catch them up in a couple years, we got to shut them down. And disproportionately, you find more black teachers and more black administrators in charter schools. In Pennsylvania, less than 6% of all teachers in school districts are black. As a matter of fact, there are some school districts that haven't had a black teacher in almost a decade. In charter schools, that number is 20%, with many schools, including many of the schools that Teresa's talking about, 
in Philadelphia that are led by black leaders that are trying to uniquely educate our kids and close that gap so that they can be competitive in the workforce for decades to come. We can't allow people to choke off this lane of school choice and think that we're going to bring our communities to where we want them to be. Xavier? Number one, we can't make we have to make sure that charter school is not a hustle. You know, they'll, start, they'll start those schools. Number one. Number two, we have to make sure that the education of our children is priority number one. And putting charter schools in competition with public schools when they don't even have the same objectives is ridiculous. And we have to be in the business of educating our kids. We have a, a we have a technology to divide. We have a old books and, 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 and not enough resources for teachers. We should be putting, instead of just dumping money and saying, hey, you solve it, where are the actual problems to make sure we are satisfying the, not just the minimum standards of, of educating our kids, but truly making them leaders in the next generation? No, I, and I agree but, with that. We should but, 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 the, we but the goals should. are the same, though. First, first of all, the, hold on, Lanny. But the goals are the same. The, the goal is very simple. I don't, this is very simple. Whether you're in a public traditional school, magnet school, charter school, parochial school, online school, private school, the goal is the same, is to educate the children. Now, the question is, who's effective? Who actually get it? Who actually gets it done? Uh, how do you get it done? The problem is that we have had this attitude, there's only one delivery system in this country. That, to me, is the problem. I, again, I go back to the decisions being made in Pennsylvania right now. The question is, are they good for the parent and the student? Not the district, the parent and the student. Lenny, go ahead. I mean, and that's that's the whole point there, Roland. I mean, we, ha we can't go into this assuming that charter schools are being created to be a hustle. Because if you want to see a hustle, go to how the, the, the education sector has been unionized for the last 50 to 70 years, and people forget, you know, yes, we still need to fix traditional school districts, but again, it's not called the Catholic school to prison pipeline. It's not called the private school to prison pipeline or the charter school to prison pipeline. That school to prison pipeline was built in the 1980s in traditional public schools, traditionally by unionized workforces that oftentimes did not look like our communities, that brought police forces in there and took cafeteria fights and made them misdemeanors over the course of the 80s and the 90s. The charter school laws that came into effect in the mid to late 90s in places such as Pennsylvania, and I was down in North Carolina with leaders down there and black charter leaders down there just last week, was for the reason of trying to circumvent some of the negative things that were going on in traditional school districts to give more of our community members an opportunity to close the gaps. People forget about charter schools. We're taking on, in some instances, three and four generations of academic failure by the school districts in those communities and trying to catch those kids up so that the family doesn't repeat the poverty that's been into the school district for quite some time. For example, the public school code in Pennsylvania was written in 1949. Think about where we were as a people in 1949. We were still dealing with segregation in Pennsylvania. Levittown, the legacy of Levittown, was being entrenched in 1949. The 1949 public school code was still written with ink of red line. So when you're talking about taking that on and one side's trying to triple down on that, 
economically and otherwise. And there's another segment trying to say, let's diversify the education delivery system so that kids and families can win in whatever system works best for them. We have to have self-determination within education and empower the kids and the families. If we don't, we're going to always be behind the curve. And if we can't catch up now, we may never catch up. How do we best incentivize that? How do we um, be, I want to ask him a quick question. How do we best incentivize? Uh, 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 the, I'm sorry about that, Roland. How do we uh, best incentivize? No, 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 go ahead. To be able to, how do we incentivize them positively, not just with dollars, but be Who? able to. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, one second. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on, one second, one second. You said, how do we best incentivize who? Who's going to incentivize? Charter, charter schools for beating certain benchmarks and making sure that... Easy, uh, that easy. You inci- easy. You inci- you incentivize them the same way you incentivize traditional public schools. You get to, keep, you get to stay open. <laughs> I mean, when, when you're doing your job, I mean, that's the whole point. See, if you're doing your job... On the charter school, let's be real clear. Depending upon what state you're in, if you have, a, if you're a charter school, you have X number of years to hit certain benchmarks, or you get shut down. Right. You got traditional public schools that ain't hit the benchmarks for 10, 15 years, and don't get shut down. So the reality is, in most states, you have a much more rigorous review process of charter schools than you do traditional schools. So to me, the incentive is you get to stay open if you hit your numbers. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm, from, I'm from Chicago where we had the last mayor got in trouble here because he was shutting down public schools and it, it, it was all over the place in terms of how it impacted him politically. And so a little bit different situation how it is in, a, in the state of Illinois, but Beyond just staying open, how do we be increasing more dollars to maybe help them? And and how do they? No, 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 no. Okay, hold up. See, okay. Let's deal with facts. In Chicago, they had 100,000 fewer students in the Chicago public schools in the previous decade. Look, I I ran the Chicago Defender. And this was the hardest point for people in Chicago to understand. If there's a school that was built to house a thousand kids and there are now 250 and 300 kids in that school, the upkeep of a building is the same. You can't say, well, I'm going to upkeep just one third of the building. I got to upkeep the whole building. The problem in Chicago was that you had one, a mayor and an appointed school board that was not communicating enough. You have a teacher's union that was very obstinate in terms of this is what we want. What you didn't have people saying, how do we reimagine education in Chicago for the 21st century and stop trying to educate like it was the 20th century? When I ran the Chicago Defender, I'm telling you, this, this was the, this what what happened with me and the Defender, to me, applied to the school district there in Chicago. We had a building where we were only using 20% of the building. 20%. 
The people were like, I said, y'all, this is a dump. The AC wasn't working in the summer, and it was cold as hell in the winter. So I said, we got to go. All these black folks start protesting. No, y'all can't move. Y'all can't move. No, we, we got to save the building. I said, hey, what do y'all want? Do y'all want to save the building or save the paper? Because the building, it would have cost us $7 million to rehab the building. The whole damn company with four newspapers wasn't worth $7 million. So when we have this discussion with education, and look, I grew up in Clinton Park in Houston. Right now, there's this huge empty field where my elementary school used to be. Why? Because folk like me moved. This, you don't have enough families there with children. So does it make sense economically to have in Clinton Park Elementary School where you're servicing less than 200 students and then the next, across the freeway you have Pleasantville Elementary School does it make sense to move the kids from Clinton Park to Pleasantville? Yes. The battle in Chicago, they don't want to do that. And so you don't have folk who are being real about what's actually happening in education. They still try. Well, when I went to school, well, guess what? That world has gone. It ain't the same. Yeah, I mean, Roland, I think you make a lot of really strong and valid points. And I think it's, it's extremely important to be able to Make sure that those schools that are really doing well, that are our charter schools, are getting all the support they need to be able to continue to create uh, more opportunities and to to better educate our kids. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the most important part. And that and public schools learn from that to be able to adopt better ways to educate our children. So. And, and that's what it's supposed yeah, I mean, to be. I, I, I just want us to just just again, we have to right. rethink education. I was one of the advisors of XQ, XQ Schools America, uh, uh, Michael. And they were, they, they, they were talking about how we reimagine high school. We've got to do that because it's not the same. There are children born today. I mean, I'm sitting right here broadcasting from a home studio, okay, with an HD camera, a portable teleprompter, laptop, a LiveView LU800 streaming unit, an ATM Mini Pro, seven lights here, three iPads, two iPhones, an Android phone. There are kids today being born into this. This is what their experience is at one, two, three, and four. It ain't a big chief as legal, big, big chief pad with a number two damn pencil. Right. Right. Um, is, do we still have Lenny? I'm here. Oh, yeah, okay. he's there. Go the, ahead. The question I have, the, the question, well, <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, uh, but the question I have for you, Lindy, uh, I, I was reading the article from uh, WKBN um, uh, about this, and you were quoted in the where they interviewed you for the article appeared. But you talked about the um, current structure of funding for uh, district schools and charter schools and how this creates a competition. And we've seen that yes. here in Detroit. I live here in Detroit, lived here all my life. And we, we, we've seen that competition here in Detroit. We've seen uh, uh, about half, about 100 Detroit public schools shut down over the past few years, past 10 years, something like that. Um, how do you change 
that funding structure? Okay, what, what, what do you think the solution to all this is? And how do you change that funding structure and that competition over the funding? Well, one of the things that we proposed in our legislative agenda at the beginning of the year at the coalition was to have the funding go straight from the state to the charter school. Because as long as the money, see, the money goes to the student and the family. It's allocated per student. So the, the state says, okay, we're going to give, you know, per student in this district is $10,000. The $10,000 for that student goes into the district. And if that kid's not at the district and is at a charter school, then the district gets to deduce up to 25 exemptions the law in 97 was only seven now it's up to 25 25 exceptions to keep the money so it doesn't follow the child over to the charter school well if the chart if the district's still acting like a pass-through they get the quote-unquote wrongly say it's their money it's not their money it's the student's money that's allocated by the state for their public education if you skip the middleman and you let that money go straight to the charter school you say look the kid's not in your district anyway. And by the way, the kid hasn't gone to your schools in five years. Why should you continue to see the money go through your district when this kid left the district in second grade because they were not comfortable and the family wasn't comfortable in kindergarten and first grade? The kid's now in seventh grade. Why are you seeing this allotment of money every year? And by the way, we're counting on you to cut the check on time. We're seeing districts and charter schools fighting in Commonwealth Court, which again is taxpayer money being wasted because the charter school has to school the, sue the school district under Commonwealth law to get their money, which comes delayed, which makes charter schools that are on the brink already that much more vulnerable economically. If you take the financial component out of it and then from there say, okay, district, okay, charter, the whole essence of this law was innovation to share amongst each other so that schools over here can catch kids up that are behind and districts over here can get to the work they're supposed to get to everybody can win look there are going to still be some school districts that will fit kids and it should but there are some charter schools that will fit kids better and they need to be available because not every kid in our community is going to be able to be eligible for a tax credit scholarship they're not going to win right. that scholarship to that fancy prep school the only way that every american is guaranteed school choice is with public charter schools within public education all right thank you all right welcome, thank you Lady mccallister i so appreciate it man thank you so very much god bless you all thanks for having me roland Oh, I appreciate it, and that's how School Choice is a Black Choice Education Matters segment. Of course, uh, School Choice is a Black Choice Initiative, founded by my wife and I, uh, because both of us are ardent supporters of education. doesn't matter, frankly, uh, the platform. We want to ensure that our kids get educated. Uh, and so we want to make sure that African Americans uh, are not only uh, participating in charter schools, but we are running charter schools. We are owning charter schools. We are in control of the curriculum. We're in control of the dollars. We're in control of everything. And so that's why uh, that uh, is critically important. All right, folks, let's talk about the new show on Netflix. In Living Color alums, David Allen Greer and Jamie Foxx are back together on the small screen. They play a father-son duo in the Netflix comedy, Dad, Stop Embarrassing Me. It is inspired by the real-life relationship between Jamie Foxx and his daughter, Corinne, also serves as executive producer. I caught up with David Allen Greer to talk about, yeah, our gumbo wars and the new show. <laughs> this mother. Now, first of all, brother, you got to They didn't tell me that I was going to have to talk to you. <laughs> now, they didn't tell me I was going to be talking to Moses. <laughs> oh! <laughs> let's, let's be friends, because you know I'd be 
that. I say in our house, I say, don't make me revert. You know, I'm from Detroit. And they're like, oh, daddy. Those guys. You don't know nothing about 12th Street, Inwood. Don't make me revert. I don't want to go show you that side. Right. She's 13. She talks to me. It's so fast. It's like talking to a gerbil on speed. I'm just looking at her. I'm blinking my eyes. I'm trying to keep up. I, I, I don't know what she said. I'm agreeing to stuff I don't understand. It's a mess. It's a mess. Well, look, man, I'm telling you, I, I, I identify with it because, again, uh, for me, taking in nieces, uh, raising them, uh, and folk, you know, tripping, and you're right. I'm like, hey, I said, y'all couldn't have survived in the house I grew up in. It's different. It's different, man. We got whoopings. I never gave my daughter. I never raised my hand to my daughter. But that's the way I was raised. Everybody got whoopings when I was a kid. It's just oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm at that. I don't even know who is second place in my family. I'm so far ahead. I'm so far ahead, you know, and I tell my daddy, I say, you know, you really shouldn't have done all that because I was really practicing for what I'm doing right now. Yes. So, yes. so I was talking. So you whipped me because I was talking too much, but I was practicing, you know, now you, you know, living in my house rent free. So I'm just saying, I think you owe me an apology for all of them ass whippings I had to take. Hey man, I have a friend. His name is Leon. He's got nine brothers and sisters. And Leon... When he grew up, he had glasses. He was an intellectual. So whenever he got in trouble, he would put his glasses on and say, Daddy, let me explain. And he said, his father had the bell. I said, why you always got to be talking and explaining? So why can't you take your ass woman and silently like your brother or sister? <laughs> he said, let me just extrapolate what had happened, Daddy. <laughs> That's how I was. Man. My mother told me millions of times, your mouth is going to get you in trouble. I was like, no, my mouth's going to give me pain. <laughs> and mama liked the fact that your mouth has gotten you paid. Same with mom, same with my mom and daddy. Married 54 years in June, and like my dad told me, son, keep talking. I said, yeah, you ain't tell me that when I was in school. Now you telling me keep talking. You know, David, you know, as parent, it's hard to have that longitudinal vision. You know what I'm saying? You just looking at what we see in front of us. But I love being a dad. I love being a black dad and imparting our knowledge to the next generation. Well, that's why uh, we're looking for, uh, for, I think people will certainly enjoy the show. Always a pleasure, man. Uh, we'll definitely uh, chat soon. All right, y'all. You can watch Dad Stop Embarrassing Me on Netflix. It is streaming right now. Yo, I had way too much fun there with David Allen Greer. But, Teresa, ain't no way in hell I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a beard that long. I, I can't. I can't. This... this like I told my daddy, this is the longest I'm letting this. You know, I shave every two days. I, 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 my got to be, got to be low. <laughs> this is that Philip Michael Thomas Miami Vice low. It got to be low. Survey out and let the people decide, Roland. No, people ain't decide the damn thing because they ain't the ones who got to shave. So <laughs> that, that, that ain't happening. So uh, Xavier, how long you watch? How long have you rocked your beard? I've been, I, well, I couldn't even grow my beard until about four or five years ago, Roland. I was like, 
David Allegra talked about. I had it right here. And in the middle, it was it was like bald man. <laughs> so I'm happy to grow my beard. I grew my beard. I grew my hair a little bit more at when uh, Donald Trump uh, came into office and as a celebration of my hair and my blackness. So I'm happy to have my beard. Come on, grow a little bit. A couple more uh, whiskers there, uh, Roland. Come with us. <laughs> no, that ain't going to happen. First of all, but do you dye your beard or is your beard actually that black? My beard is perfect in black, Roland. <laughs> Y'all Ain't notice, no he, Michael. You notice he didn't answer the, Michael. You yes, notice he didn't answer the question. Uh, no, no, right. no, no. We want your talk, Roland. It's all natural and it is beautiful. Like, it is black and it is lovely. Wash your hands. Right. So, uh, Xavier, how, Xavier, how old are you? I'm forty-five. Xavier, how old are you? Forty-five. Your ass lying. You know damn well. You know damn well. You dying that beard. I don't know who you think you fooling. You, you, you and Anthony Anderson both dying y'all beard. Michael, go ahead. Uh, well, thanks for that interview and shout out to my fellow Detroiter, uh, David Allen Greer. Uh, now, to me, he looked like the Black Grizzly Adams with that with that beard, man. Because I, I remember David Allen Greer from Boomerang. So <laughs> he's a long way from Boomerang, but. Uh, thanks for that interview. And he mentioned 12th Street. So 12th Street is also known as Rosa Parks Boulevard here in Detroit. And 12th and Claremont is where the 1967 Detroit riots began, began uh, July 23rd, 1967. So uh, 12th Street is very historic in the uh, history of uh, of Detroit. What you trying to do? Trying to get a travel segment? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I live in Detroit. <laughs> I got it, I got it. But you're trying to give a whole, a whole travel segment. You don't walk around like... He said, he said you don't know okay, about 12th Street in Linwood. 12th Street is very historic. You damn that's right, I know. That's where the 67 Rebellion began. 1967 Rebellion. 12th and Claremont. Michael trying to be an atlas and everything. All right, y'all. Well, you know, I, I appreciate it. Brotherhood, scholarship, and service, Roland. So that's what we do. You know, doggone well. You know, doggone well. Don't nobody... Ever talk about scholarship? Bring up sigmas. Nobody. <laughs> All right, y'all. Don't don't don't, don't let me hurt your feelings. I'm feeling on this Friday. I got to go. Hey, y'all. Uh, do not forget. Uh, if y'all want to support what we do here at Roller Martin Unfiltered, uh, y'all can join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar you give goes to support what we do. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, all the support y'all can give. Uh, please, uh, you can utilize Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, PayPal.me forward slash R Martin Unfiltered. Uh, we have Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. Zell, rolling at RollingSmartin.com, rolling at RollingMartinUnfiltered.com. Uh, all of y'all, if y'all want to give you on YouTube, give us direct. Cause we, if y'all give on YouTube, we get 55% of what you give there, but you can give to us direct, and we get the full 100%. So, uh, I certainly appreciate that. Uh, and so, please, if you want to uh, mail uh, money order, New Vision Media, NU Vision Media, Inc., 1625 K Street, Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. All right, folks, that is it. Uh, I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. Uh, uh, Michael, Teresa, and Xavier uh, with the dyed beard. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate being uh, on today's panel. Uh, and, of course, thank all of our guests as well. All right, folks, you all have a fabulous, fabulous weekend. And don't forget. 
This is Black-Owned Media. Black-Owned Media Matters. Uh, this is why we met. Y'all drop the little third, please. Uh, Black-Owned Media Matters. Uh, we're always advancing is holding all these companies accountable to make sure they're spending their dollars with us. That's critically important uh, because, again, we should be getting our fair share uh, in all of these companies uh, when it comes to uh, the dollars. That's how we're able to build, be able to grow. We've got some exciting things coming up right here on Roller Mark Unfiltered. Also, real quick here, folks, uh, somebody had hit me. They saw uh, one of the uh, shows here, and they asked me uh, just some of the books. Yesterday, uh, we had Ray Winbush on. Uh, this was uh, Ray Winbush's book, uh, Should America Pay Slavery and the Raging Debate uh, About Reparations? The Raging Debate on Reparations by Raymond A. Winbush. And so that's uh, this book uh, right here. Uh, of course, we're going to have a book author interview on Monday. Uh, let me see here. Gerald Horn has this great book here uh, called Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. That is uh, this book uh, right here by Gerald Horn. Uh, of course, you could go to my YouTube channel, watch my interview with Gerald Horn. Uh, we also have, uh, uh, actually, there are two other books by Gerald. Like I said, y'all can go check that interview out. Uh, I love this one here. The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Barnett's Pan-African News, and the Jim Crow Paradox. This is really, really uh, a great book that y'all can actually check out uh, right here by Gerald Horn. Uh, and the last one from Horn, uh, I got a bunch of his books here. The last one from Horn, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. That's this book uh, right here. Uh, book on white supremacy by uh, Gerald uh, Horn, and the last book uh, from uh, my, my my boy. He was a late founder of NA, first of all, was the founder of NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists, uh, an awesome, awesome guy. Uh, and uh, let's see here, um, he passed away before the book was finished. His daughter finished the book. Her name is Tamara Payne. I'm talking about Les Payne. Uh, the book is called The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. And that's what this book here is. Uh, winner of the National Book Award. Uh, it's, uh, man, it's a phenomenal book. And so I can't wait to finish it. I've already started reading it. But right here, uh, again, Les's book, award-winning book on Malcolm X, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of of Malcolm X. Trust me, uh, some great original reporting. You don't want to miss that. All right, folks, that's it. I appreciate it. I'll see y'all on Monday. God willing. God bless y'all. Have a great one.
Thank you for listening, everyone, and have a great weekend.